Support for IPR comes from Orchestra Iowa, presenting Pops on the River, an outdoor concert experience with songs from the Eagles featuring the Seven Bridges Band and the entire symphony. June 1st at McGrath Amphitheater. Tickets at orchestraiowa.com. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Coming up later in the hour, in the second half hour, I'll be joined by author Jared Yates Sexton. His latest book is called The Midnight Kingdom, A History of Power, Paranoia, and the Coming Crisis. Fascinating book, and in it he writes about white supremacy, um, religious myths, and uh, conspiracy theories uh, going way, way back, centuries, and ties them into the threat of authoritarianism around the world today. But first, we are at the start of the second week of the 2023 Iowa Legislative Session. It's a session that comes after an election in which Republicans increase their majorities in both chambers, and we're seeing Republican lawmakers, together with the Republican Governor Reynolds, uh, having an ambitious agenda on many fronts, uh, especially in the area of education. Let's start talking about education with Kathy Obradovich, editor of Iowa Capital Dispatch. Hi, Kathy. Hey, Ben. How you doing? Very, very well. I want to uh, talk with you about a number of items that uh, you and uh, your reporters at Iowa Capital Dispatch have been covering, but let's do start with education. Tell us about the governor's latest school voucher bill uh, and uh, remind us how it differs from previous legislation because it was introduced in 2021 and, and we had it in the session in 2022 as well. That's right. Well, Ben, first of all, people should know that this bill is really on the fast track. Uh, it is moving simultaneously in both the House and the Senate. Uh, the, the Senate had a subcommittee hearing um, last week where people were allowed to come and speak. Um, and there were dozens of people who came at two in the afternoon uh, to speak about this bill. Um, there's, so there's a lot of interest in it across the state. Um, the House is having its public hearing at 5 p.m. today. And I would expect uh, a whole lot of people uh, to show up to be heard about this bill. It's been very controversial. And as you mentioned, uh, the discussion about it's been going on for the last uh, couple of years. Um, adding to the fact that this bill is on the fast track is that Republicans have added a new wrinkle, um, which is that the bill can go to the floor after it comes out of the education committee's mm. education committee in the House. It does not have to go to other committees like the Appropriations Committee or Ways and Means. Uh, those those committees would assess the the cost of the bill to the state treasury and any tax implications. And uh, they are just uh, moving the bill straight to the floor here yeah. um, once they once they pass it out of committee. So I think that that's important for people to know. Remind us of the differences of the previous legislation, and, and, and then we'll get, get into the arguments on each side here uh, for and against uh, this type of uh, voucher bill. Yeah. So, I mean, some of the differences, um, uh, there are several, but one is that um, they are going to leave a little bit more money um, with the home uh, school district. So um, basically, if um, a student moves to, um, the, to from a public school to a private school, um, they are going to leave about $1,200 per student in the school district. Um, so that's a little bit of a difference. Um, also, 
um, it, it looks like that they are now um, expanding this proposal so that um, uh, you start off with people who are um, lower income who can qualify for this, but by the by the third year, um, anyone um, can qualify for it. So I expect that to be a big point of controversy as well. You know, should the, should taxpayers be subsidizing? you know, essentially um, wealthy families uh, to send their kids to private schools. Yeah. And remind us of the Democrats. They are against this. Um, uh, they are in the minority, so they don't have much say here, as this uh, seems to be flying uh, through the legislature. Uh, their arguments against this is is really that it, it will damage pu- public schools, right? Exactly. That You know, um, it, this does siphon money away from public schools directly as a child moves to a private school, but also indirectly because there's only a finite amount of money in the state treasury for education. And so, um, you know, over the years, as more money, you know, goes into these private school scholarships, um, there just would be less money available for public schools is the concern here. Um, The real significant opposition in the past had not come from Democrats. It has come from rural Republicans. Mm-hmm. And I think we still, ha- I, I, as fast as they're moving this bill, I, I assume that the, the new lawmakers who have come on board since the election are in favor of this legislation. Um, but I think we're going to have to see if they're unanimously in favor, given the concern in the past. There's a lot of school districts out there in rural Iowa who would not see any benefit from this because they don't have any private schools in their districts. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kathy, keeping in the field of uh, education, um, bills having to do with gender identity uh, were introduced last week. Tell us where these are and remind us what their aims are. So there's a specific uh, bill that takes aim at some of the gender support plans uh, that have been have popped up in school districts around the state. The Linmar uh, School District has one that in, was, in, you know, particularly in the news. Uh, they are not alone in having these. Um, but one of the big points of controversy over these gender gender support plans is that the school district, in working to support a student's gender identity transition. Um, are giving them the opportunity to have a gender support plan, which the school would meet. And it includes things like addressing the student by a new name or new pronouns or allowing a student to use the restrooms and locker rooms, you know, corresponding with their gender identity. And um, students could choose to exclude their parents um, from this process and this discussion if their parents aren't supportive, um, for example. And that is the big point of controversy. So uh, the legislation that has been proposed in the House would essentially require um, parents to be informed if a student tries to go through this gender support plan and process. Um, LGBTQ advocates say that that could be dangerous for students, that um, students uh, who have parents who are not supportive, you know, could uh, be... Uh, facing even more severe mental health consequences, and some older kids might even be kicked out of their house um, or face abuse um, if parents are are informed, you know, uh, as a matter of course. So that that is a big issue. There's also a bill dealing with um, curriculum and what can be discussed in class. 
uh, related to LGBTQ issues uh, for younger kids. Um, and critics have called this kind of a parallel to Florida's don't say gay uh, legislation, um, you know, essentially trying to avoid references to LGBTQ issues um, for younger kids, especially in the elementary schools. With this host of bills having to do with gender identity that you've just described, is this purely along party lines, the support and the those who say it should not happen, or, or do, is there a mix of any kind? So it, it has been pretty uh, partisan in the past. I mean, again, with new lawmakers, it's hard to say whether some of them, you know, might be uh, crossing the aisle one way or the other here. Um, but for the most part, this has been a Republican initiative. Mm-hmm. Uh, I understand a bill introduced last week would eliminate gender balance requirements. Now, this is away from schools, gender balance requirements for boards. Tell us about that and the thinking behind it. Yeah, so for for a long time, um, in order to essentially increase participation by women on state boards and commissions, there has been uh, a requirement that state-created boards. So that might include boards at local um, government level as well. Um, But, (laughs) excuse me, if the state creates a board, then you have to have an equal number of men and women on the board. Um, And uh, so this has been a, a difficulty mainly because it's just hard to recruit people for boards and commissions. Um, There actually is also a lawsuit related to gender balance requirements on boards and commissions for um, judicial nominating commissions in the state. Um, So that lawsuit is going on separately from this legislative discussion. Um, There is a subcommittee on that bill today, so that bill is moving forward. Um, And, uh, you know, we'll have to see how um, how it plays out. I mean, the the bill basically just eliminates any gender balance requirements. Um, you know, I, it seems to me like there might be some middle ground there where you could you could soften some of those requirements if you just have trouble are really having trouble recruiting. But um, so far, they're going with the all or nothing approach on that bill. Kathy, let's finish up um, at the legislature with the, the capital punishment. This has been something that has surfaced again and again over the years. We remind ourselves as Iowans that uh, in our state it was abolished in 1965 by then Governor Harold Hughes. So it's been nearly 60 years uh, since Iowa had uh, um, the death penalty. This session, uh, another attempt to bring it back? Yeah. So this is, as you said, kind of a perennial issue. And the, the version that um, lawmaker, Republican lawmakers keep trying to bring back would um, institute the death penalty as an option for someone who's convicted of raping and murdering and or kidnapping a child. So it's, um, you know, they, they talk about it as being a limited death penalty, um, but, uh, you know, and sort of designed as a deterrent. Uh, to, you know, they are the argument in favor of it is that, you know, if somebody has kidnapped and raped a child, they're they're facing life in prison, um, you know, no matter what. And, and if they leave the child as a witness, that they might be more likely to be you know caught and convicted. So they're they're arguing arguing that. Um, I don't know how likely it is that this bill will, will advance. Republican majorities have failed to advance it the last few years. 
Um, but with a new larger uh, Republican majority, um, the bill sponsor, Brad Vaughn, felt like it would be a, you know, uh, more likely to be a live round this time. Um, and the death penalty is not a strictly partisan issue. Um, you have Republicans um, who have opposed it in the past for various reasons. There are, for example, conservatives in the Republican caucuses who are Catholic, uh, and the Catholic Church does not support the death penalty. So um, it's hard to say where that legislation will go. Um, but I think it's it's worth mentioning this time because you've got a lot of new members and you just don't know how they're likely to vote. Yeah. Before we go in the minute or so we have left, I see on your um, Iowa Capital Dispatch website, uh, you have a new piece by uh, just an, such an excellent journalist, Jared Strong. He's been on these conversations I've had with Jared as well. But uh, this has to do with water contamination in, in shallow wells. Tell us quickly about that. Yeah, so Jared has been working on this story for months, and it's it's definitely worth a read on iowacapitaldispatch.com. But he went out to Nichols, which is a small town in Muscatine County, where uh, a lot of residents, basically residents in in that town, have very shallow wells for their drinking water. And so in some cases, even these wells might even be in their basements. Um, These wells are less than 30 feet deep, and they are really susceptible to contamination. Also in Muscatine County, you also have big uh, chemical companies. Uh, Monsanto has been there. There are other large chemical companies, you know, uh, manufacturing herbicides, et cetera. Um, And, you know, back in many years ago, some people got their wells tested and found out that they had really high levels of nitrate in their water. And so they went through a long process where the DNR, the state, was out testing wells every three months. Um, They had uh, companies buying drinking water or filtration systems for communities. Now, fast forward today, um, those efforts ended years ago. Um, They had a few uh, tests where there wasn't a lot of contamination, so uh, they just ended all of that. Well, some of these residents now have tested their wells again, and they're right back up to high levels of nitrates again, which are da- you know dangerous for infants. Um, they can cause cancer, thyroid disease, et cetera. And Nichols is not the only town in the situation, but the state is not keeping really close tabs on that situation. Okay. Iowa Capital Dispatch, uh, the editor, Kathy Obradovich, um, lots of um work there from um, Kathy and her crew at Iowa Capital Dispatch. We look forward to talking to you again soon, Kathy. Take care. Thanks so much, Ben. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Last week, Iowa Supreme Court Chief Justice Susan Christensen delivered the annual condition of the judiciary to a joint session of the legislature, the state's executive council, and other dignitaries present. Let's talk about Iowa's court concerns briefly with Randy Evans, executive director of the Iowa Freedom of Information Council. He's in our Des Moines studio. Uh, The council is a nonprofit consortium interested in openness in government and First Amendment rights. Randy Evans, welcome to the program. Thank you, Ben. Glad to be with you. want to make sure it's clear in our uh, listeners' uh, minds that you were also a reporter for many years and decades for the Des Moines Register covering civil and criminal courts, and your work now at the council uh, in part helps ease the burden of the court system handling journalists in the courtroom. Let let, let me, since we only have about five minutes or a little bit more, let's uh, have you comment on uh, Chief Justice Christensen's uh, 
assessment of the court. She says everyone in the judicial branch really got good at handling the daily challenges of the pandemic, and they, in her words, got stronger, better, and there was a calmness, a sense of peace. What's your reaction to that statement and to the um, uh, the Chief Justice's assessment of our state court system overall? Well, I tip my hat to the the judicial branch for the the way they scrambled to to deal with the uh, effects of COVID across the state. Uh, it was a uh, a curveball that really affected uh, the ability to to schedule hearings and and trials. And uh, uh, I give the the court system good marks for uh, sort of keeping up with the the ever changing challenges that uh, COVID presented. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the, um, what Christensen said in her address about the state's obligation to provide indigent counsel for. Uh, defending the uh, needy, the impoverished criminal defendants and juvenile court clients. And she said that's on the brink of collapse. Help us understand how we got here and what what's needed. Well, I think the, the problem is one of those that uh, just kept uh, growing as uh, with each passing year. Uh, and it's a, it's a dollars and cents issue, quite frankly. Uh, you know, one of the trends in uh, – the legal profession in Iowa is that uh, uh, the number of lawyers in rural counties uh, is declining. Uh, you know, young lawyers are uh, gravitating to uh, uh, the urban centers where uh, they believe they can earn a, a, a larger income. You can't have uh, criminal trials in Iowa. You can't have juvenile uh, court proceedings without the defendants being represented by attorneys. Uh, and for those who are indigent, uh, that becomes a challenge because uh, indigent attorneys in Iowa, attorneys who represent the indigent, mm-hmm. uh, are paid uh, significantly less per hour uh, by the the state than uh, – uh, an attorney of comparable experience could earn in private practice. Uh, so, you know, the the chief justice is is painting a a picture of a uh, of a situation that is is growing in Iowa, where it is difficult to get uh, attorneys who are willing to represent indigent clients, uh, and you can't you can't proceed to trial uh, without these individuals being represented by an attorney. So, so how is the judicial branch responding? The, uh, you know, I think the chief justice's uh, remarks last week were an attempt on her part to, I think, educate the, the members of the General Assembly on the importance of uh, providing more money to, to increase the hourly compensation rate uh, for attorneys who represent indigent clients. Uh, you know, right now, uh, those attorneys can uh, can make more money in private practice uh, if they represent indigent clients. Uh, you know, in the surrounding states, they can make more money. Uh, if they are representing multiple indigent clients and are having to drive uh, to meet with those uh, people, they have to absorb their travel 
uh, time themselves. They don't get paid for the time they spend driving. Uh, so I think this is a, uh, an attempt on the chief justice's part to help the legislature understand why more money is needed uh, for the uh, indigent defense program. Yeah. Does that tie into the judicial branch asking the legislature for a 6.8% increase in their budget, $12.9 million um, coming after legislators approved a slightly smaller increase in the branch's request last year for a 5% increase? Is that part of that? Is that the bigger That's picture? part of it, but, but part of uh, the increase also uh, would need to go through the, uh, the Iowa Public Defender's Office, which is the uh, the state entity that actually contracts with uh, private attorneys to represent indigent clients. Um, but it's it's a dollars and cents issue. Mm-hmm. Um, the Chief Justice also mentioned a shortage of court reporters. Remind us quickly what they do and how we have a, a, such a shortage in our court system. The, the court reporters uh, are the uh, transcriptionists. They work for the judicial branch. Uh, they are there uh, reporting and taking uh, – making a verbatim transcript of what is said in a, a hearing. Uh, they're there for a trial, uh, taking a verbatim transcript of uh, the testimony. Uh, these transcripts are, are uh, invaluable when there is an appeal in a case uh, because that's what the appellate court – uh, judges and justices are reading to to better understand what occurred during a, a case. Uh, and this is a matter of uh, the aging out, if you will, of uh, uh, court reporters. Uh, they're reaching retirement age and uh, there are fewer of them coming in the, the pipeline. More of them retire every year than uh, enter the, the profession. And, and it's another uh, issue where, uh, uh, you know, there's a tug between working for the government and working in private practice because uh, a court reporter could make more money uh, working for pl- private clients uh, than they can for the government. So money again. Mm-hmm. Randy Evans, we've run out of time. I hope to have you back in the future as uh, we watch the issues that you've highlighted here in our judiciary. Um, Randy Evans, Executive Director of the Iowa Freedom of Information Council. Thanks for coming into the studio today, Randy. Thanks, Ben. Coming up after a short break, um, a conversation with Jared Yates Sexton. His political writing has appeared in the New York Times, the New Republic, Politico. His latest book is titled The Midnight Kingdom, A History of Power, paranoia and the coming crisis. Very interesting, tying white supremacist lies, conspiracy theories that go back centuries even. My conversation with Jared Yates Sexton in just a moment. It's River to River from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from Orchestra Iowa, presenting Pops on the River, an outdoor concert experience with songs from the Eagles featuring the Seven Bridges Band, and the entire symphony, June 1st at McGrath Amphitheater. Tickets at orchestraiowa.com. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer. 
It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. My guest this half hour is Jared Yates Saxton. He is a political commentator and author. He grew up here in the Midwest, in southern Indiana. He was on the faculty of Georgia Southern University for about 10 years and left academia to write full-time in 2022. His previous books include American Rule, The Man They Wanted Me to Be, and The People Are Going to Rise Like Waters. His political writing has appeared in the New York Times, The New Republic, Politico, and other publications. His latest book is titled The Midnight Kingdom, A History of Power, Paranoia, and the Coming Crisis. In it, he writes about white supremacist lies, religious mythologies, conspiracy theories, and how these things have created our modern world and increased the threat of authoritarianism. Sexton also hosts the Muckrake podcast. He's the author as well of three collections of fiction. Jared Yates Sexton, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Let's dive right into this new book. You take a look at the forces that have shaped human civilization for centuries, and you tie them into uh, present-day crises. To to quote just a, a sentence or two out of your book, forces are hard at work, to try to rewind time and reinstall theocratic authoritarian rule based on weaponized faiths that once ruled the world. Tell us more about what you set out to do in this book. Yeah, so one of the reasons I ended up writing this book is I wanted to understand how the modern world was built, but also why these new threats and movements that are trying to attack democracy, why they keep referring to Western civilization and these stories about what has been built. And, you know, it, we, we, we've seen these statues being pulled down and people rallying to like old ideas and traditions. And I wanted to understand the total story. And, and what I realized very quickly was that a lot of the things that we're experiencing right now, these conspiracy theories, these anti-democratic movements, I realized that these weren't unprecedented, but instead that they were present throughout history. There are these cycles that we see play out over and over and over again. And it just so happens that we are in the middle of a brand new crisis that will determine what the next cycle will look like. And I needed to understand what was at stake and, more importantly, what was possible. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's take far too little time to get to all of the sort of historical signposts, is what I'll call them, your your tracing, because you go way, way back to the trace this idea of Western civilization. But give us some of the, the touchstones that we should keep in mind when you say this is not new. This is a cycle, and we are at the beginning of a new cycle. Yeah, so I began with uh, ancient Rome or the Roman Empire, and I'll go ahead and I'll say that, interestingly enough, I found all of these conspiracy theories that currently, um, you know, we're, we're dealing with in our current environment, everything from QAnon conspiracy theories to the big lie. I found them centuries ago, and 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 what happened in the Roman Empire? In the Roman Empire? Something oh, absolutely. Like Oh, absolutely. Um, You know, as the Christians were worshiping in the catacombs, there were all types of discussions about what they were doing to children and, you know, draining them for their powers, like really disturbing things. 
And what I found was that whenever there was an operating system for the world, whether it was the Roman Empire or feudalism or colonialism, whenever these moments started to lose some of their power, whenever they started to seem like they were sort of going, um, you know, on the fritz a little bit, there would be a crisis. There would be this moment where these conspiracy theories would pop up, when we would start having, um, you know, clashes in our cultures. And what would happen is that they would burn this new cycle, right, where things were done differently in some way, shape, or form. And these conspiracy theories and these narratives are always there and they're always um, affecting what the next cycle will be. And so what I discovered very quickly is that it doesn't matter whether it's ancient Rome, whether it's the age of kings and queens or, you know, colonialization around the world, these same stories that we're dealing with now have always been present and they've always had an influence over what's happening. Mm -hmm. Okay, so with the focus on Western civilization, bring us more up to date uh, within the last couple of centuries. When, when was the last cycle, you would say? Well, you know, we, we've currently, we're currently living in what a lot of people would refer to as the American century, um, the post-World War II era. Of course, America became the sole superpower after the fall of the Soviet Union. Um, but what is happening right now is that America and the so-called American empire is in crisis. You know, we, we feel this. Um, we're the, historically the wealthiest, and most powerful nation in the world. We've created this world order that is basically to our benefit. Fit. And yet you have people who they can't get jobs. You know, we, ha we have uh, senior citizens who are having to cut their medicine in half, who are having to do without. And so there's a, there's a crisis of faith. There's a crisis of faith in our institutions, in our leaders, in our economy. And when that happens, there has to be an explanation for how we've arrived at this, plus also alternatives. And as the American century is, is, is becoming more and more fraught and as we're losing this confidence, there are a lot of people who are coming forward to offer uh, explanations, except for those explanations are conspiracy theories. And what I've found is that the, the, the powerful use these conspiracy theories to take the onus and responsibility off of themselves and put it on their political enemies, which is what we're seeing now. We're, we're watching this crisis develop and we're being told stories that tell a little bit of the truth about what has happened, but they also go ahead and they obfuscate some of the most important parts that we can use to start to figure out how to make the world better. Mm -hmm. uh, let's go back a few years to 2015. You point to that date, and, and in your introduction to your book here, you talk about this type of upbringing that you had in, in southern Indiana and your grandmother sort of being fleeced of, of, from her money by televangelists. And you write, um, well, specifically to 2015, zero in on that year, because you say it was the first year that I realized, first realized this affliction that troubled my family had become a pressing existential threat. So talk a little bit about your family and how you, at that point, seemed to tie it in to something much bigger. Yeah, so I come from a rural southern Indiana town. Uh, my people are factory workers, coal miners, laborers. 
And we grew up in, in incredible poverty. But we also grew up in an evangelical tradition that, um, there's no other way to put it, was very extreme. When we went to church on Sundays, we were talking about supernatural evil. We were talking about uh, conspiracies that were coming after us. And I always thought that that was just sort of contained within my small community and within my, my family and, and, and uh, my surroundings. In 2015, though, I started sneaking into Donald Trump rallies and talking to some of the people there. And the conversations I was having at these rallies made me realize that the same sort of stories and ideas that had been percolating in my small rural Indiana town had gotten loose. And they had started to amass around the Donald Trump campaign. And I realized very quickly that this was a dangerous thing because a lot of these stories that my family and my community believed, um, they had some really dangerous ideas behind them. The idea that democracy was dangerous, that um, there needed to be more, um, you know, more authoritarian measures taken to, you know, oppress some people and maybe even lock some people up or do some very violent things. And so starting in 2015, I started to sound the alarm that something really ugly was starting to gather in this country. And the more that I've done research on this and, and, and in the writing of The Midnight Kingdom, what I realized was that those same stories that I was growing up in and that my community was telling have prepared people for centuries for the overthrowing of elections, for violence, for a lot of authoritarian results that unfortunately now in America and in other so-called Western democracies, um, we're starting to see gain purchase and power. And, and it, it really chilled me, to be honest, because I had heard and seen a lot of things that made me realize that this was not going to end well. Mm -hmm. If you've just joined us, my guest this half hour, Jared Yates Sexton, his latest book, The Midnight Kingdom, A History of Power, Paranoia, and the Coming Crisis. Jared, you and I have uh, in common uh, witnessing um, Donald Trump uh, uh, tr Donald Trump rallies. You said you snuck into uh, rallies um, back in 2015 or, or so. Uh, I went to a rally in 2020. And I want to zero in on your thoughts about the people who latch on to, who are susceptible to the conspiracy theories that y you've described here, because they're pretty much teed up, ready to go for someone like Donald Trump, who, who comes in and talks about Western civilization and that things are being uh, taken away from, from you. Now, when I spoke with uh, Donald Trump supporters outside of the rally, all very nice, uh, just super nice people uh, to me, I, even though I identified myself as a member of the media, once inside the rally, and perhaps you witnessed this too, uh, that it really became kind of vicious, and that viciousness directed often several times during the 90 minutes or so that Donald Trump spoke toward the press pit, uh, hurling obscenities, booing, uh, you know, flipping the bird, if you want to say that. Talk about the type of people and what happens in that in that transformation to a person, because these were families with kids even, you know, at this rally. Yeah, so in my research, what I've discovered is that these conspiracy theories, they find purchase with people who don't understand what's going on and they feel powerless and they feel hopeless. And so what these conspiracy theories do is they offer an explanation. 
right? And the larger explanation is that there are very, very complicated economic, political things that have happened to reorder the world. In America, of course, this has, um, you know, led to deindustrialization. Um, you know, it has led to concentrations of wealth, the destruction of the middle class, you know, uh, worsening conditions in uh, rural areas. And as that has happened, those are really complicated things that are very hard to explain. It's a lot easier to say there is an evil conspiracy. There's this room where all the decisions are being made. And by the way, they're not being made for economic reasons. They're being made because these people are supernaturally evil. And so when you start to make inroads, and, and what I've noticed is that you know, I've seen a lot of family members, I've seen a lot of friends, I've seen a lot of community members who have uh, fallen down like the QAnon rabbit hole. Usually what happens is that this is, um, you know, precipitated by a person having a personal crisis. Um, you know, maybe they lose their job, maybe they go through economic hardship, maybe they're going through a divorce, they're going through some sort of a personal crisis. And as a result, these conspiracy theories or Trumpism or these authoritarian movements, they offer empowerment, right? They offer community. You can go into one of these rallies and meet, you know, thousands of like-minded individuals and suddenly you feel strength and purpose. Um, this is not just relegated to the Donald Trump campaign. This was also the basis of fascism, Nazism, and other authoritarian movements. But they're always based on those stories that give people an enemy, right? And it's a lot easier to have a focus. It's a lot easier to have an enemy that you can attack and that you could possibly even uh, win a victory over than it is to have these larger complicated stories about international finance and globalism and, you know, um, all, all of these trends that are very, very specific and uh, require a lot of information to understand and also feel larger than us, that make us feel like there's nothing that we could possibly ever do to change them. And so the these movements gain so much power and so much purchase because they give people the illusion of power and the illusion of community. And meanwhile, they're being fleeced of their money, uh, they're being taken advantage of, and the people who claim to represent them are absolutely on the other side of the equation. Right. And th this is really a, a life and death struggle, as you write about here, that um, you know, when when people think, well, authoritarianism may not to be too bad, they're weighing that through a, a belief that the end of the world is imminent. So in that light, it makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to point something out. Um, the people who believe these conspiracy theories and, and to go ahead and use kind of a ridiculous example from current events. You know, over the last few days, we've seen a lot of people getting all whipped up about gas stoves and whether or not the Biden administration is going to, you know, ban them. Right. Like yep. lit literally a story like that, which is about what kind of stove you have in your house and childhood asthma – it's been turned into a story that at any moment, if you have a gas stove and, and you know, if you, you live in a certain place, that government troops are going to break down your door and they're going to not only take your stove, they're going to throw you and your kids and your neighbors into camps. And what ends up happening is that these, these fears, these apocalyptic fears that um, have been put in place by a lot of religious ideas, by a lot of cultural ideas – it creates a life-or-death, fight-or-flight scenario. 
And so as a result, every election becomes, oh, we either win this election or we're going to be thrown into camps. We either win this issue or, you know, uh, it's going to mean the death of me and everyone that I love. And that apocalypticism is incredibly powerful. It, it holds a lot of sway over people and it has become the de facto mode of our politics right now. Yeah. And this also allows a person in this line of thinking to accept the growing extremism in terms of, uh, well, domestic terrorism. Looked at an assessment report submitted by the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security to Congress not too long ago. Uh, In 2020, the statistics um, arrested approximately 180 domestic terror subjects. From 2020 to 2021, that goes to 800, from 180 to 800 in one year. So this explains uh, the attacks on uh, democracy and the acceptance as a part of this struggle uh, of domestic terrorism, kidnapping attempts. And these stories, by the way, these conspiracy theories, what they do is they prepare people to do things that otherwise they never would have considered. You know, I have tons of friends and family members and community members who now openly fantasize about a civil war. They fantasize about picking up their weapons and going out and imprisoning people or murdering people. And they do it because they believe that they're part of a new invisible war. And one of the most frightening things about this is that we have seen this in the past. It's done everything from inspire the Oklahoma City bombing, of course, in 94, but it's also inspired genocides around the world. It's inspired wars. And so when you start having these fantasies about these conspiracy theories and about being a freedom fighter who, you know, is putting everything on the line – It can create revolutions, but it also can create authoritarian movements. And so what we're watching right now at this current moment, which is why I keep talking about this crisis, is you are watching literally millions of Americans who are living in an alternate reality that are full of these weaponized conspiracy theories who are preparing themselves for doing things like overthrowing the democratic process or going out and waging war against invisible enemies. And and I want to say something very quickly because this is heavy stuff. I remain optimistic that the future is going to be better, but I think any sort of movement towards that better future has to rely on us admitting that this situation is getting worse. And by understanding that, we can begin to actually wrestle with how we can make things better. Mm -hmm. Jared, we're having this conversation in January of 2023, a year before the next presidential primary campaign gets underway in earnest. Um, So uh, perhaps this is is zooming in a little bit and want to broaden it out before we have to end this conversation here. But what are you watching uh, specifically in regards to 2024 from what I gather in this book and from what you've said? Trumpism, if you call it that, will continue without Trump. It doesn't matter whether he's the nominee for 2024. Yeah. So one of the things I like to tell people is that Donald Trump is not the disease. He's a symptom. And one of the things that we're watching right now is a normalization of Trumpism. Um, you know, Donald Trump, uh, there's no other way to put it, is, is a buffoonish character. You know, it's a lot of spectacle. It's a lot of saying outrageous things. The thing, though, is that he has made very clear to people that these institutions and guardrails that we used to think would keep us on the right track simply don't exist or, you know, they've fallen apart. What I'm watching right now 
is a lot of coalescing around individuals like Ron DeSantis in Florida who uses his power to, you know, go after educators, to wage culture wars. You know, it's a it's a quieter type of authoritarianism than what Trump had. And so as things start to progress, we're starting to see people like DeSantis or Greg Abbott in in Texas. We're starting to see these individuals uh, gain a lot of support and acceptance because they're not Donald Trump, right? Because they, they're not that buffoonish type of cartoon character. And that's not just happening in America. That's happening around the world and a lot of these countries where supposedly this could never happen. And so we're starting to see, again, this normalization or legitimization of of, of these figures that in the past would have been unthinkable. But now the groundwork is being laid for them to be um, accepted into the mainstream. In the final couple of minutes, I wanted to just push back a little bit. 2022 was a bad year for authoritarianism. We can list, for instance, the huge protests in Chinese cities against their strict zero COVID lockdown measures. In Iran, the huge protests uh, that started with the death of that young Iranian woman for, uh, for not wearing her hijab properly. In Russia, Putin seems to have badly blundered with his attempt to conquer Ukraine in a matter of days, underestimating uh, support for Ukraine. And, and we saw most recently, democracy seems to have held in Brazil. Do, do those instances give you hope? Oh, absolutely, they do. Um, again, I remain very, very optimistic. And one of the reasons, and, and I want to point to a through line in all of that, which is the people on the ground in those countries and in the United States, they have rejected this. And humanity is incredibly resilient and always pushes towards democracy. What I am afraid of in all of this is some of the creeping elements of it. And, you know, it, it, it just so happens that these things usually ride on the back of economic turmoil. Um, we have climate change, which is, you know, um, leading to one crisis after another. I'm worried that some of these things are going to rear their head. And as a result, these underlying authoritarian elements are going to come out. But that being said, everything you just brought up, whether it's China, Brazil, Russia, even here in America, where I think um, we're seeing democratic movements left and right, I think that these things point to the fact that we are going to have a better future, but it is going to be a fight. It's, it's not going to be an easy road, but I, I think we're going to get there. Okay, thank you very much. Um, Jared Yates Sexton, his latest book, The Midnight Kingdom, A History of Power, Paranoia, and the Coming Crisis. Jared, thanks for joining us today from uh, your native state of Indiana. We appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure. River to River today, produced by Samantha McIntosh. Our executive producer is Catherine Perkins. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer.